Okay, we're going to continue in our Matthew series, um, and uh, the series we're in right now is called Starting Point, and I say this all the time, but I do it just in case it's your first time listening or watching or your first time here. Um, we are breaking down the book of Matthew, uh, and we're going to cover every verse, every chapter, but we are going to do it through sub-series so that we can more adequately cover all the, all the subject matter, uh, and we are currently in one of those sub-series called Starting Point. Now, the title of this sub-series is perfect for what we're studying because it describes exactly what was going on because Jesus was just starting to send his disciples out to begin this new ministry of grace. And so it was really the starting point of this, this New Testament ministry, if you will. And this one is, is different than what everybody was used to because the ministry that he was beginning was one based on, on grace and love instead of legalism and religion, which is what they were so used to. So um, that's all the recap you're going to get. So last week we discussed uh, how the Pharisees were blinded by legalism. Okay, we discussed that last week. Now, Kevin was kind of wrong. Yes, it's Blinded by Legalism Part 2, but there was also another part of that title that he didn't announce, which is the beginning of the end. So, <laughs> but anyway, so last week we began uh, this two-part section here on, on legalism, but see, the Jews were so focused on the law that they missed its whole purpose. I mean, they missed its whole purpose. So, what happened last week was Jesus challenged their lack of understanding and application. Now, all of us know the legalistic people, the people who are so worried about keeping the rules that they kind of forget about grace and mercy and love. You know what I mean? I mean, they're so concerned with whether you do what the bylaws say or whether you act like their version of a Christian that they forget that this is about love and this is about grace. So he kind of challenged them last week on that. So this week, Jesus is going to explain how how God desires love over legalism. So we're going to pick up right where we left off. Remember, it was the Sabbath day, and Jesus just got done defending his disciples because they had picked some heads of grain and ate them, and the Pharisees were saying, your disciples break the law because they're working on the Sabbath because they thought that taking a head of grain and clearing it off and getting the kernel to eat was the same as working because they thought it was harvesting and winnowing and threshing and preparing a meal, which is ridiculous. But he just got done defending them on the Sabbath, and he goes to the synagogue. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 9. It says, Then Jesus went over to their synagogue, where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, Does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping, now pay attention to this, they were hoping... He would say yes, so they could bring charges against him. Okay, now talk about walking into the lion's den. Okay, because he just got done defending his disciples from these people. And where does he go? To the synagogue, which is full of Pharisees and Sadducees and legalists who, who don't like him and want him gone. And he walks right in that. I mean, full of enemies, but he went there because it was the right thing to do. Okay, so he walks right into the, the lion's den, if you will. And see, the Pharisees, they wanted so bad to find a way to catch Jesus breaking the law. Because he was kind of turning over the apple cart, if you will. He was actually getting people's attention and starting to change lives, and people were starting to get behind him. And they wanted so bad to find a way to charge him with breaking the law so that they could put him in prison or, or kill him or just get rid of him. They wanted so bad to get rid of him. But no matter how hard they tried... They couldn't find a reason to charge him. They just continually tried, but everything they came up with didn't work. So they came up with an idea to trick Jesus into breaking the law. And it's kind of interesting how they chose to do it, because 
they decided they would use his love and compassion against him. Right now, notice that they were hoping he would answer it's okay to heal on the Sabbath so that they could bring charges against him. So that tells us what most theologians believe. That tells us that they probably invited that crippled man, with that man with a deformed hand, they probably invited him to the synagogue so that he would be there. They wanted that man to be there because they knew when Jesus saw this man, he would love him and have compassion on him and want to help him. So this is a plant. They put this guy there, and I doubt the guy was in on it. They probably just invited him. But they knew he had this deformity, and when Jesus saw that, they knew he was going to want to heal him. So this is a huge setup, and they're hoping, they're hoping that they could say, catch him saying, yeah, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. That way they could get rid of him, right? Now, they're going to find something out as we go into the next verses. They're going to find out it is impossible to get one over on God, okay? It's not like anybody here ever tried to fool God. I'm not going to make you raise your hands because I know you have. You know what I mean? Where you try to justify what you're doing, like God doesn't know the real reason why you did it. You know what I mean? Oh, but, I mean, this is the same thing. They're trying to fool God. Jesus was God the Son. But what he did left him kind of speechless. Let's take a look at this. Let's jump down to verse 11. And he answered, If you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Okay, so when Jesus walks up to the synagogue, here's the scene. He walks up to the synagogue and he sees this man with the withered hand, with the, you know, with the deformed hand. And the word deformed there in the Greek actually means withered or drawn up. You know, if, you know sometimes you see people whose hands have, have been drawn up, whether it be from something that happened later in life. You know, the Bible doesn't actually tell us how it happened. We don't know if he was born that way or if he'd had an accident that severed a nerve. We don't know, but we know he had this withered, this drawn-up hand. So he walks up and he sees this person. Now think of, think of the compassion you would have if you're the kind of person you should be. Because this guy, imagine how tough it would be for him to find a job. I mean, this was a working society. There wasn't a lot of tech jobs back then. Okay, there wasn't a lot of receptionist jobs for men back then. I mean, it was a working society. And here's a man who would have to do whatever job he did with one hand. And imagine the ridicule he got from the mean people. And imagine those sympathetic looks that people gave him when he walked by. If you've ever been in a cast or had to use a little knee buggy, anybody ever have to use the knee buggy? <laughs> that is demeaning. But anyway, uh, you ever notice those sorrowful looks you get? And at first you're like, oh, thank you. And after a while you're like, shut up, it comes off, you know. But think of all the looks he was probably getting from people, both, you know, scornful looks and sympathetic looks. So this man had had a rough life, and, and Jesus sees this man, and immediately he's having compassion on him. So the Pharisees' plan seems to be working because it really sounds like Jesus wants to help him. And they're probably thinking, yes, we've got him. Look at the way he's looking at that guy. He's going to heal him. You know, you would think somewhere in that thought process, they would realize that he can heal people. That there might be a little God intertwined in that deal. But no, they just didn't want him upset in their religious apple cart. So they're like, yes, this is actually working. So everything hinged on how Jesus answered this question that they had ready for him. And the question was, hey, I mean, there's a guy here with a deformed hand who'd probably like to be healed. Is it lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath? 
All right, and I can just see the cocky look in their eyes. But I love how Jesus answered this question with a better question. I, I, I love this. He asked him, let me, he said, let's, let's say one of your sheep, this is a very, you know, livestock society. They'd lived on raising animals. You can tell I'm not a farm guy and, and growing crops and stuff. But he says, let's say one of you had a sheep and it fell into a well or a pit on the Sabbath. Would you get it out? Well, of course you would. Of course you would get it out. Yes, it is good. It's okay to do something good on the Sabbath. And people are so much more valuable to God than sheep are to God. Right now, this question was brilliant. It was brilliant because although according to the Pharisees, lifting that sheep out of the pit would violate the law, most Jews would look the other way when it came to livestock because that was your livelihood. So they would look the other way and say, yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah, technically it's a violation, but it is his sheep. So you can't just let it sit down there and die. So most, most of them would just look the other way when it came to a sheep. Now, I mean, in their mind, after all, I mean, even Proverbs says you should be good to animals. Look at Proverbs 12.10 for all those of you who are mean to animals. It says the godly care for their animals, but the wicked are always cruel. So they probably had this justified so many different ways. And here's what's sad, is that they had more compassion for livestock than they had for people. You know what I mean? This, this is ridiculous. Have you ever, I mean, I'm probably going to offend 100 people here. I really don't care, but um, have you ever noticed that, the, I mean, the, the wacko, uh, over-the-top animal rights people and tree-hugging people, I mean, they're stellar about protecting animal life, and they don't care one bit about protecting human life. I mean, this is the beginning of them right here. Hey, I love animals. I am like Ace Ventura. I love animals, right? And they love me, except cats. But anyway, I mean, so these people literally thought more of livestock than they thought of the normal human race. I mean, that, this is unreal. And Jesus asked this question thinking, if they say that it's okay to pull a sheep out of a pit, but not okay to help a human in distress, it's going to show everyone they have no human compassion. And you notice that it doesn't tell us that they answered him. You know why? They probably didn't answer him. Because in their mind, they were thinking, if we answer this, that it's okay to pull a sheep out but not help a person? What's that going to say to people? It's going to reveal that we're kind of jerks. So they just stood there speechless. He's saying, don't you think people are more valuable than sheep? And this man needs help. You know, they were just speechless. And he said, yes, it is okay to do good on the Sabbath. That is okay. And actually, if, if you look into it, it would be a sin not to do good. On the Sabbath, look what James says in James four seventeen. He says, "Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do, and then what? Not do it. If you knew you could help a man on the Sabbath, if you knew you could do something good for that man on the Sabbath and didn't do it, it would actually be sin." So he throws this ball right back into the court. This is just a brilliant point. So it silenced him for now. Trust me, they're not going to stay silent long, but it silenced them because this was a brilliant, brilliant point. Now, they weren't going to give up, 
right? Because you see that they started plotting against him. But here's the thing I noticed in this whole scene that we began with here is that there were more deformities present at this synagogue than just this man with a deformed hand. There was a lot more deformities than just this man's deformity. See, this man's deformity was outward. People could see he had a withered hand. So people could right away see that this man had a withered hand. But the Pharisees and the legalists' deformity didn't show because it was internal. See, this man had a withered hand, but the legalists and the Pharisees had a withered heart. Because their heart had shrank up, if that's the right word. We'll say it is. It had, you ever see the Grinch? Anybody ever see the Grinch? You know how the heart was real tiny and it got big? I mean, we're talking reverse. They had this little tiny Grinch heart. Seasonal, you're welcome. Anyway, <laughs> their heart had shrank because they, they had been, become so blinded by legalism that they'd forgotten about love and compassion. And he really displayed that. Here's the thing. Religion and legalism don't leave a lot of room for love and compassion. It just doesn't. You can't be a good legalist, a good rule follower, and be compassionate and loving. Because what if compassionate and loving makes you break one of the rules? Well, we can't have that. You see, legalism works against everything Christ wanted for us because it leaves no room for love and compassion. Religious people notice how people dress in church. That's what religious people do which drives me insane, right? Religious people think about people's reputation when they come to their church. Another thing that drives me crazy. Oh, I know what that guy's reputation is. What's he doing here? I don't know, maybe he needs Jesus, crazy me. You know what I mean? Religious people know all your sins and focus on them and give you church look when you walk in. You know, that's what religious people notice but people who just love Jesus notice when someone is hurting and they want to help them. People who love like Jesus can tell when somebody needs the love of Jesus and will share it with them. That's the difference between a religious and a legalistic person and a person who actually has the love of Christ pouring out of them. That's the big difference. Let's move on because I love this next section. Verse 13, then he said to the man, hold out your hand. Hold out your hand. You ever notice Jesus always asked for one step of faith? You ever notice that? He could have just walked up and said, tag your heel. I mean, that would have been it. But he says, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored just like the other one. Remember that. We'll come back to that. It was restored just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. See, they may have just wanted to put him away and charge him before now they wanted him dead because not only did he make him look like idiots which wasn't a hard thing to do but now he revealed they didn't have the love for man they should have he shut down their plan he trapped those who were trying to trap him by asking a better question than they asked they wanted him dead but let's go back to here i just love how he said hold out your hand basically jesus was saying you know you're broken you know you don't want to stay broken if you think I can heal you, give me your brokenness. Reach out your hand. And the man reaches out his withered hand to Jesus, and, and Jesus healed him. Just healed him. Jesus does what he always does. When you trust him, he delivers. That's what he does. 
When you trust him, he delivers. And once again, let's look at how it said, and it was restored just like the other one. The reason they added that in there was this was showing God's approval of what Jesus was doing. You know why? Because the other hand that had not been deformed, who made that? God made that. When Jesus healed this man, he completely replicated God's work and made the other one just like it. Only God can replicate God's work. So when people look to say, is this a trick? Is that a fake hand? Is that a prosthetic? You know, <laughs> they went up to look at it. They're like, oh my gosh, it's perfect. Just like it should be. Just like the good hand that God created. Now God came and finished the job and made the other hand perfect too. You know, this was God putting his stamp of approval on it. You see, here's the thing. When we have something broken in our lives, when something goes wrong in our lives, we like to think that it's a punishment, don't we? Listen, if God punished you for every time you sin, you would be constantly punished all day long. You'd just be walking around with a whip on your back all the time, mm, mm, getting your toast, you know what I mean? Sometimes we're broken so that the glory of God can be revealed when he fixes us. Sometimes it's the people that seem the most helpless that God uses the most powerfully to show how much he loves and cares for his people. To reveal what a big God he is. And I'll bet if all of you think, of a time, think about it, you can think of a time when your brokenness turned into a blessing, can't you? You can all think of how other people saw your brokenness turn into a blessing. Sometimes it's the ones we see as helpless. And those are the same ones God's going to do something huge and something powerful through their lives to reveal himself. Right? So this was... This was a powerful testimony, not only to God's ability to heal, but that this was indeed God's son and that he was doing the will of God. Sometimes I think we forget that God can still do stuff like this today. I think we really forget that God still heals the broken. Now, I know that there's wackos on TV that have been charlatans and made stuff up and had, you know, the mics in the ear and, you know, pretending to heal people and people flopping on the floor. I get that. But listen, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, okay, which is a really weird saying. But anyway... Remember, remember, just because a few people misuse and misrepresent gifts of God, it doesn't mean that God still doesn't have gifts that he gives us and gifts that he reveals to us. God can still heal the broken. Listen, if you want a relationship with Jesus, if you don't have that and you desire it, you're broken. Did you know that? And if you want to be fixed... Like this man, you just have to reach out to Jesus and believe. That's it. You want to know how to become a believer? Believe. Right? Reach out to him and believe, and he will fix that part of your life, and you'll become one of his. If you're hurting, listen, when you're a believer, there's still times we're broken. We're all, we're going to remain broken. But there are times we're more broken than other times. There are times when our heart aches have you ever had heart pain that makes you feel like you're broken i mean where you lose a loved one or someone walks out on you or someone betrays you and your heart just feels broken and so many times people when they're in that broken condition they decide to listen to the wrong voice whispering in their ear 
And they get mad at God. And they walk away from God. They walk away from church. And they, and they live in their pouting and, and sniveling off in the corner. And, 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 and it's basically like a sick person just refusing to go to the doctor. Listen, if you're hurting, if you feel betrayed, if you feel lost, even after you've become a believer, if you want that to go away, admit you're broken. Reach out to Jesus, and he'll fix you. He will fix you completely. If your marriage is in trouble, listen, Christians, our marriages can be in trouble just like anyone else, right? Because we're still human beings that sin. But if your marriage is struggling, don't give up on it. Don't walk away from it. Together, reach out to Jesus. Trust him to heal it, and he will heal that marriage. It doesn't matter what's wrong. Healing begins with reaching out to Jesus, and we see that here. We see that here. Every time we're hurting, we're like, why isn't God doing something? Well, have you reached out? Because like that man with the withered hand, the first thing he says was, stretch out your hand. Or give me your brokenness, and I'll heal it. See, the difference is, unlike the Pharisees, unlike the religious legalists of our time, Jesus actually cares when you're broken. He doesn't judge you. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't insult you. He doesn't demean you. There are people, Christian people, that I would never go to with my problems. Anybody else in here know that, those people? I mean, only four of you? Then you guys know a lot better Christians than I do. Listen, there are people I would not go to. I wouldn't go to them if I was hurt and needed counsel because I know the first thing they would do is say, well, if you were living right, you know what I mean? And start judging me. Jesus doesn't do that. And Christians who want to be like Jesus shouldn't do that. When you come to him, he cares. All he cares about is recognize that you're broken. Reach out to me and I'll make you new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become what? Has become what? A new person, the old life is gone, a new life has begun. I I love this. I mean, if you think about it, God sees us all as deformed or broken somehow. And it doesn't matter how we're broken, how we're deformed. If we come to Jesus, if we just reach out to Jesus, he'll restore us. And I love that section because I think it perfectly, perfectly describes that. Now let's move on to verse 15. But Jesus knew what they were planning. He left that area, and many people followed him, and he healed all the sick among them, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. Now, there's several different areas in Scripture where we see that, and there's several different reasons, but I'll explain why in this section he says not to reveal it. Do you ever wonder that? Why he'd heal somebody and say, don't tell anybody? There's several different reasons, but in this section, it's really important that we point this out. See, from the time Jesus began his ministry, he knew that they were going to kill him. He knew when they were going to kill him and how they were going to kill him. He's God. He can't help it. Right? He knows. Right? And so his refusal to compromise truth for religion, he knew was going to make him a target. He knew that was what was going to lead to his demise. He knew that. And the more people he healed, the more lives he touched, the bigger of a target he actually became. Yet, He kept healing and changing lives because that was God's will for him. That's what God wanted him to do. And he always put God's will above his own, right? Above his own human nature. Now, he did tell people, don't tell anybody. And here's why. In this section, the reason is, is because he didn't want to be known as a man of conflict. 
He didn't want to come into a situation where he just had to go to battle, if you will, had to defend his actions, if you will, to the Pharisees and to the legalists, and then immediately go heal people and look like he was spiting them. He never wanted to be seen as a man of conflict. He, he didn't want that. He didn't want, to be, he didn't want to be known for his retaliation. Oh, you say I can't heal? Well, watch this. You know? He didn't want to be seen like that. He didn't want to see, be seen as vengeful. He didn't want to be known for his arguing. He just wanted to be known for sharing the truth, for sharing the peace and truth and love of God. That's what he wanted to be known for. And we know that because that's why Matthew quoted this messianic prophecy or a prophecy about the coming Messiah is what messianic means. Uh, he quoted this messianic prophecy from Isaiah, Matthew twelve seventeen. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him. Look at my servant. Now notice the capital S on servant. We're talking about God here. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved, capitalized, talking about Jesus, who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not what? He will not fight or or shout or what? Or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious, and his name will be the hope of the world when it says the hope of the world it's saying not just for the jews the entire world jews gentiles everybody so this this messianic prophecy was isaiah describing jesus he was describing jesus hundreds of years before jesus came when he prophesied about the servant capital s servant he was talking about the coming messiah he was talking about jesus now jesus could have shouted at them couldn't he he could have said, idiots, seriously, you don't recognize that I fulfilled every prophecy? What is wrong with you morons? Do you just carry that around for a coaster to hold your drinketh? You know? He could have shouted at him. He didn't shout at him. He could have. He could have fought with them. He could have fought with them and won. I mean, anybody here want to fight God? You know what I mean? He could have fought with them and won, but he didn't. Listen, they were weaker than him in every facet because he was all God and all man. He was wiser. He was stronger. They, could, they had no chance against him. They were weak. They were weak. They were like a flickering candle to him that could easily be blown out. You know when a candle is just about ready to go out and the wax is almost to the top? And you can walk by and go, and it goes out. That's what their power was to him, nothing. It was nothing. He could have done that, but if he had done that, if he had gone out and spited them by healing and saying, yeah, and go tell them who did this. Does that sound like a Jesus-type thing to do? Hey, come here, come here, come here. You got something wrong with you? Let me heal you. Okay, you're healed. Now go tell the Pharisees what happened. Go tell them that it was me holding the jersey out, right? Go tell them it was me that healed you. That's not how he wanted to do it. That's not how he wanted to be known. Because if he would have done that, he would have been just like the rest of the leaders that the people were used to back then. Because even the religious leaders wanted to crush their enemies. If they got weak, it was an opportunity to destroy them. Hey, they're weak on the flank. Let's go in there and crush them. The, if you would have asked the Jewish priests, what would you like God to do to the Romans? 
they would have said, crush them into powder. I'm so sick of serving those. Ugh, I would just wish he'd crush them and destroy them, smash them like a bug. If Sorry, keep throwing that in there. But imagine, that's what they would have said. Most leaders wanted to crush their enemy. And the ones they didn't crush, they wanted to show their power over them, control them, show them who's boss. This is what most of the leaders wanted to do then, right? Jesus didn't. Jesus wanted to love his enemies. Does that sound familiar? Jesus wanted to save his enemies. And that made him stand out. Because he said, my servant won't be like the other leaders that come that claim to be the power that I've sent. My servant will come and he will win every battle when he walks this earth with love and truth. And in his love and in his truth and in his grace, there will be victory. And not just for the Jews, it'll be for everybody. And he's going to do it without, without picking up a sword, without raising his voice, without having an argument and beating down and making the other person look ignorant. He is going to do all this with love and truth because love and truth always lead to justice and victory. Always. Always lead to that. Right? And through the truth that he brought and through the peaceful way he did this, everyone, man, woman, Jew, Gentile, didn't matter. Everyone had the opportunity to have eternal life. And because he chose to do it this way, we know him as the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. That's why he was telling them not to tell. He didn't want to appear to be spiteful. Now, if we could just get believers today, I mean, to, to, to love and act and treat people the way Jesus did, wouldn't that be nice? I know it sounds, that sounds terrible coming from a pastor. But I'll be honest with you, some of the most bitter people I know are the legalistic Christians. The big rule followers, it's always looking like the hall monitor, the kid everybody wants to beat up, you know what I mean? I mean, this is what the legalists are. They, they don't have any of the compassion. They're just, just like the Pharisees that he was dealing with, just like them. I tell you what, God revealed to me long ago that this same mindset still exists today. He revealed that to me a long time ago, early in my ministry. Because I remember going to pastor's conferences. I don't go to many of them anymore because I've been kind of disappointed with some of them, but there's still some good ones if you can find them. But I I would go to these pastor's conferences, and I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be such a powerful experience, a bunch of shepherds coming together under Christ the shepherd, and we're going to talk about the love in our church, and we're going to talk about exciting ways to reach people, and we're just going to, this is going to be an amazing, amazing time, and I drove all the way to Texas, which I will never do again. I will fly, right? But went all the way to Texas, you know, and, and, and I walked in to a room full of 90% pompous legalistic people. Oh, arguing over who did the most righteous things. You know, before they would even talk to you about anything godly, the first thing they'd want to know is what school you attended. Because that way they could label you and be on the offensive and make you look weak and attack you. First question out of their mouth. Hi, I'm Pastor Chris. Where'd you go? What school did you go to? I'm like, hi, I'm from Indiana. I mean, can we, you know, at least have a little bit of kindness? Because they want to know whether to label me as a Calvinist or an Arminianist or a Calmenianist or whatever. And there is a Calmenianist because theologians got bored. Right? They want to know how to argue with me. First thing they ask me, they want to get on the offensive. You know what I love to tell people like that? I love to remind people like that of the apostles. 
You know why? Because 10 out of 12 of them had no formal education whatsoever, and they turned the world upside down and will be sitting on the 12th throne. So I felt like saying, mm, maybe you're putting a little too much emphasis on that. You know what I mean? It just it, it frustrated me. Frustrated me. I mean, they wanted to make sure that they knew how to attack you before they got to know you. One of those pastors, I'll never, I'll never forget this. He comes up. He, I was young at the time. I like to think I still am. But he comes up and he says, well, in Connecticut, we're looking for a young pastor. And I said, really? He said, yeah. First guy that didn't ask me where I went, so I was excited to talk to him. He says, um, here's, my, here's our list of qualifications. I read that list, and I'm like, you couldn't hire John the Baptist. He's like, must have a doctorate's degree, must have published literature, must be able to work with youth, must be able to, to understand music, must be able to do this, must be able to do that, and at the end said $30,000 a year. <laughs> and I'm going, wow. Talk about, you know, searching for Sasquatch. Here you go. But, I mean, it was just, it was unreal. It was unreal. And I still see this in churches everywhere. I really do, because <laughs> churches everywhere battle for attendees. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. Right? They really believe we're in a competition. We're not, people. We are in the same battle together. All the churches. Our desire is to see people come to Christ. There are over 7,000 people last, at last count in this community who do not have a church. I would love to say that we are going to reach every one of them. But you know what's more important is not that we reach them, but that somebody reaches them. You know, that's what's important. People need Jesus. We don't have time to be in competition, but here comes the legalists. When a new church comes to town, they try to attack them. They try to find out what they know so they can find reasons to talk about them. It's constant. It's just like it was then. And while we're busy trying to compete with each other, there are people hungry for faith. But they're not getting fed because we are too busy competing for attendees. I had someone tell me one time, I'm going to try this other church. I said, okay. And they said, I'm sorry. I said, why? They said, well, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I said, if you grow closer to God there, you're not going to hurt my feelings. If you're not being fed here, be fed somewhere. You know, I'm thankful for those people. Listen, I want you to know something. At Grace, we don't compete with other churches. At Grace, we help other churches. We welcome other churches. You know why? As long as they're teaching the truth, we welcome other churches. Because people need to be reached. And we can't reach them all. Listen, I love what Jesus told Peter. Listen to this in John 21. Verse 15, after, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Listen, the Bible refers to us as sheep and lambs all the time. I, I'm not going to go into that again. But he's saying, if you really love me, if you really want to be known as those who love me, give them the truth. That's what it means to feed the lambs. Give them the truth. Don't give them religion. Don't judge them. Don't look down at them. Give them the truth. Our job is to give people the truth. That is our job. And that's what we want to be known for at Grace. Giving people the truth. Not competing with other churches. Not worrying about legalism. We want to be known for loving people enough to set them free with the truth of God's word. That's what this is all about. And we know we're succeeding when people walk out of here knowing more than when they came in. When people leave here understanding that God loves them and sent his son to die for them and they can have eternal life free of charge. When people know that, whether they stay here or not, 
We've done our job. I've said this a thousand times. My job is to reach people, not keep people. If they want to reach people, they will stay with me and help. If they don't, we got to reach people either way. That's what Jesus was trying to show these Pharisees and these legalists. He was trying to show them, stop worrying about your rules and start thinking about loving people enough to tell them the truth and set them free. Because listen, if your church isn't focused on love and truth, it's the beginning of the end of it. If we're going to have an end, let that end come the way Jesus came. Let them come get us because they can't stop us from telling the truth. Let that be the end. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you, Wood, to please bow your heads. We always give an invitation. And here's why. I truly believe that God changes lives in an instant. There's not a bunch of stuff that has to happen first. Just like that man with a withered hand, you just have to know you're broken and believe he can restore you. That's it. So we always give an invitation, and we don't ask people to come up front and do all that because that's not what it's about. But when I pray through the week, I pray for those people who I know are searching. And if you don't know for sure if you know Christ, if you're not comfortable with your relationship with Christ, I want to pray for you. And I'm not going to point you out, but if you just lift your head and make eye contact with me, bless those people. Bless those people. I'm not going to email you. Bless those people or, or, or try to embarrass you. Bless those people. I'm not even going to chase you down after church. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and I'm going to pray. God, they know they need you. Let them continue to reach out so that you can restore them. And if you're listening online or watching online, I don't have to see it for God to see it. I'm going to pray for you too. But listen, as believers, I want to pray for all of us because it is so easy to become dedicated to church before we're dedicated to Jesus. I want to pray that you're searching actively for people who need his love, his restoration. And then our first goal is to love people like he loved people. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. Every week, I thank you for your grace because every week, I am amazed. Every day, every minute, I am amazed that you would love someone like me. I make mistakes. I sin. I do things I shouldn't do. I prove why we needed a Savior and we couldn't do it on our own. And I thank you that you love all of mankind enough to look past our shortcomings. And give us eternal life by faith alone. I thank you for your grace. And I thank you that your grace is stronger than our shortcomings. And our sin. And I just pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you. Whatever it is that's holding them back. We don't know what it is. But we know where it's from. It's the enemy trying to talk them out of receiving the most free and easy gift ever given. Eternal life. I pray that whatever that is you just clear it out of their head. Let them see the love that took you to the cross and let them reach out to you in faith. If they can just believe that what you did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, your word guarantees they'll be one of yours. If they make that decision, I pray they reach out to us or if they're a long way from here, that they reach out to a good church or Christian person near them so that they can have someone to walk with them in their journey. And God, for those of us who already know you, it is so easy to get in the daily routine of just doing church of just following the rules. 
God, I pray the most important thing in our life is searching out people to show your love and compassion to and sharing the truth with them. Let our hearts and our minds be focused on enlarging the borders of the kingdom and not following the rules. When people see us, when they hear us, let them see and hear you and our love and our actions and our words so that we can turn this community and this country and this world around. God, I pray that you bless each of us as we leave here. Keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.